Steramist is premium EPA-registered disinfection for all steps of the food production process. Steramist eliminates bacteria and viruses from any food contact surfaces without wiping or leaving any residue. Find out more about Steramist at tomimist.com. That's T-O-M-I-M-I-S-T.com. Tomimist.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Food Safety Matters, the podcast for food safety professionals. I'm Stacey Atchison, publisher of Food Safety Magazine, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Adrian Bloom, editorial director of the magazine, and Bob Ferguson, president of Strategic Consulting. Hey, team, welcome to another episode. Hi, Stacey. Good to see you. Howdy. Yeah, it's always good to be with y'all. Um, so we've got a packed episode today, uh, so I'm going to get right to the juicy details. For today's interview, Adrian speaks with Lone Jesperson, founder of Cultivate, and Carol Wallace, professor of food safety management systems at the University of Central Lancashire. Both have been on the leading edge of food safety culture and continue to explore new ways to advance culture from the production line to the C-suite. Yeah, I think you're going to find this interview really insightful, especially in helping reframe how you think about your food safety culture and how nudging behavioral modifications to help improve it can be achieved more successfully and easily than you might think. Also in today's episode, we have a short conversation with Zach Ducheneau, administrator for the Farm Service Agency at USDA, who will share details on the newly launched Food Safety Certification for Specialty Crops program. But before we jump to the news, Lone Jesperson, one of our esteemed guests on the podcast today, will be moderating the keynote session at this year's Food Safety Summit. The title is Risk Culture, How to Balance Risks for the Safety of Consumers, Team Members, and the Environment. The panelists are David McDonald, President of OSI Group, Michael Eckhart, Senior Vice President, Chief Legal and Risk Officer and Secretary of Wawa, as well as Randy Huffman, Chief Food Safety and Sustainability Officer at Maple Leaf Foods. It's sure to be an incredible discussion with these senior executives about how successful food companies manage risks that sometimes compete for investments and leadership attention. And in my opinion, there's really no one better to make this a, a, a meaningful discussion and to make sure that everybody has great takeaways uh, than Lone Jesperson. So we're very, very excited about that. So please plan to join us. This is just one example of the incredible program that we've put together for you this year. You can review the entire agenda at foodsafetysummit.com and then use, because you guys are special to us, discount code FSM23PODCAST to add a 10% discount to your registration, which until March 31st means an extra 10% on top of the early bird. So... I also don't want to forget to mention that we have great offerings for groups so you can bring your whole team and, and so, lots of folks do. So take a look at that. All right. That's FSM 23 podcast. Register today. You'll be glad you did. And now here's the news. Yeah. So at the top of our news roll today, 
we have to mention the groundbreaking announcement by FDA of its transformative vision for restructuring the human foods program. Now, this announcement came on January 31st from FDA Commissioner Dr. Robert Califf, and it's the culmination of months of analysis and planning following the Reagan-Udall Foundation's report of its evaluation of FDA's human foods program, which it released in December, as well as the FDA's own internal review of the infant formula safety and supply crisis in 2022. So, The FDA's new vision includes creating a unified human foods program under a single leader who reports directly to the FDA commissioner, removing redundancies, modernizing data systems, providing more resources and authorities, improving emergency response systems, and building a generally more robust and effective regulatory program. Now, all of the structural changes and improvements would help realize the vision of the Food Safety Modernization Act. Now, under the new plan, the functions of the Center for Food Safety and Applied Nutrition, or CIFSAN, the Office of Food Policy and Response, or OFPR, and certain functions of the Office of Regulatory Affairs, or ORA, will be joined under a new organization called the Human Foods Program. FDA will appoint a deputy commissioner for human foods to oversee this program, and that person will report directly to Dr. Califf. The deputy commissioner will have decision-making authority over policy, strategy, and regulatory program activities within the human foods program, as well as resource allocation and risk prioritization. This is a key role because one of the Reagan-Udall report's primary criticisms was that regulatory decision-making capacities within FDA are encumbered by a culture of indecisiveness, risk aversion, and too much reliance on consensus. So other key elements of the proposed new human foods program reorganization include the creation of a Center for Excellence in Nutrition that prioritizes FDA's ongoing efforts to help American consumers make more informed food choices, the establishment of an Office of Integrated Food Safety System Partnerships that will focus on elevating, coordinating, and integrating FDA's food safety and response activities with state and local regulatory partners, the establishment of a Human Foods Advisory Committee to help support the agency's scientifically grounded decision-making activities, an emphasis on strengthening enterprise IT analytical capabilities, and communication and workflow capabilities, and the refocusing of ORA's operating structure to emphasize its core mission of FDA field activities, such as inspections, laboratory testing, imports, and investigative operations under a separate organization to be led by an associate commissioner for regulatory affairs. Now, this part has been criticized by a coalition of industry groups who are concerned that this would go against the Reagan-Udall report's key idea of unifying ORA's operational functions with other elements of the human foods program in a direct reporting relationship to the new deputy commissioner. So FDA's Center for Veterinary Medicine will continue to operate as a standalone center, but the relevant food safety activities will be coordinated between the CVM Center Director and the Deputy Commissioner for Human Foods. Now, to do all of this, FDA has formed an Implementation and Change Management Group to develop a plan for execution of the new vision, and it's working to develop it into a concrete reorganization proposal. 
Though FDA hasn't given a concrete timeline for this work, in the meantime, all departments within the agency will continue to operate under their current structures under Dr. Califf's oversight. And now additional updates on this plan are anticipated by the end of February, so we will stay tuned for that and report on those when we hear them. Where do we begin? <laughs> <laughs> I thought we were going to have some impactful news. What's, what's going on here? There's a lot to yeah. digest there. <laughs> There's a lot there. Uh, Adrian, I think you're going to have a lot to report on as this goes on. And it seems to me like the, 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 the phrase that comes to mind for me is how much for how much. What exactly is, is it that they're doing here? I think it's good that they're going to put the, F, the food back in FDA for FDA and, and, and see what's going to happen here. But I, I, I don't want to be too critical, but it sounds like it's a little short on details. This new position, exactly what are they going to be in charge of? They talked a little bit about what's that phrase, some portions of ORA would be under this uh, review, or under this person's uh, purview, but exactly which ones, what relationship do they have uh, with enforcement? The other thing that surprises me a little bit is that they don't have a timeline. And one of the things that I know we talked about before is that this is happening at lightning speed. Uh, you know, the Reagan Udall was over the summer. They came up with their recommendations in November. This has clearly been thought about over the past six or eight weeks, and the FDA is coming forward uh, with a plan. That's very quick. Uh, to me, if it doesn't stay at this pace, it's going to, to me, somewhat reinforce what you just said about um, the, the agency possibly having indecisiveness, risk aversion, and reliance on consensus and getting bogged down in this stuff. So I think they're going to have to continue to move fast. And depending upon what sort of plans are available in the background and how fast they're prepared to go, I think it's going to, uh, it's going to be interesting to see uh, wh where this winds up. Uh, I'm particularly interested in the what I would call the position description of this new deputy administrator. And they also say that there's a principal associate commissioner that reports to this person. And really, what's the relationship there? What's the deputy c commissioner's real task? Are they there to sell this program? Are they there to be... A, a functional on the ground manager, or is that really the, the principal person? You know, what happens there? So it'll be interesting to see how this develops and we can watch this over the summer. Well, Bob, that's still a lot. And I just have to admit here for the, I'm, I'm, I'm just totally, you know, I'm trying to keep up here. If this is a lot, this is a huge change. I can't even imagine. Um, these types of, of structural changes at the, you know, at this level, when you're talking about this many people and, and this much ingrained culture, you know, um, I circled when, uh, Adrian was reading that about relying too much on consensus. And, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of management by consensus going on in a lot of places, but I could understand why you wouldn't want that here. Um, cause that's too much like to get everybody to buy in and go, yeah, we're all on board. Um, but we have seen that there's already been a letter, you know, from, uh, from key stakeholders to FDA saying, you know, uh, dear, uh, Dr. Caleb, can we talk about this? <laughs> so, um, we'll see without going into all the details about that. I think it's going to be very interesting to see how this all shakes out and at what time frame. Um, I think the fact that they're addressing it and they're addressing it quickly is kind of uncharacteristic, right? Um, yeah. they're, they're showing a willingness to go, okay, we're, we can make some changes here. Um, and it's going to be, it's going to be very interesting and we will continue to, uh, report on this as all the details, uh, come forward. 
Well, well Stacy, if I can, I think your comment is perfect. And I don't claim to have seen the, all the letters and, and responses that the FDA has had, but all the ones I've seen are somewhat along the tone of, this is a good idea. What exactly is it? What is it that we're seeing? And until we know the details, it's going to be hard to know what that is. And, and you made a great comment there a second ago where you said management by consensus has its place, but not when you're doing structural change, yeah. because there's a lot of people who don't want things to change. There's a reason why things became the way is that they don't mm -hmm. want to change. You can't get consensus where people don't already agree. This has to be, I don't yeah. use the word forced through, but it has to be um, done in a different way. Well, and that's why the Reagan Udall report, right? right? Exactly. They had somebody, they had to call in somebody else. That's it's right. like, we can't, no matter how fast we run across the room, we cannot get a glimpse of ourselves here. <laughs> so um, we really need you to help us get some perspective on uh, on the structure and make some recommendations. And that happened quickly. So, I mean, right. there are a lot of really good signs here, but we'll see. We'll see. Uh, yeah. And hopefully, you know, it's the beginning of positive change. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And we will be keeping an eye on this and we'll be keeping you updated. So uh, stay tuned for more news on the subject. But actually on the subject of things shaking up at FDA. Um, <laughs> our, more? Yeah, there is change? more. Change? There's <laughs> more change on the horizon. And our, our next piece of news is an announcement from Frank Giannis that he'll be resigning from his position as Deputy Commissioner of Food Policy and Response effective February 24th. So Frank joined FDA in 2018 with the goal of helping to modernize the food safety oversight system in the U.S. And during his time in office, which encompassed the COVID pandemic, food supply chain disruptions, and six different acting or permanent FDA commissioners. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. Um, I didn't realize that. Yeah, no. Frank has advanced FISMA by issuing the food traceability final rule under FISMA 204, as well as issuing the proposed agricultural water standard. He also unveiled the new era of smarter food safety blueprint, furthered the concept of food safety culture, and developed several pilot programs for food safety standards and imports. He also helped prevent foodborne illness outbreaks through efforts such as the Leafy Greens Action Plan and the Foodborne Outbreak Response Improvement Plan. So in his resignation letter, Frank noted that he had considered leaving the agency in February of last year due to the decentralized structure of the Human Foods Program, which he wrote, quote, significantly impaired FDA's ability to operate as an integrated food team and protect the public. However, Frank decided to postpone his resignation after the infant formula crisis broke out during that month. Frank also shared several points for consideration with Dr. Califf in his letter that echo the recommendations of the Reagan Udall Foundation report. He wrote, I firmly believe the agency would operate more effectively and be better able to protect the American public from foodborne illness with the creation of a more integrated operating structure and a fully empowered and experienced deputy commissioner for foods with direct oversight of those centers and offices responsible for human and animal foods. And just on a personal note, we'd like to thank Frank for all the time and energy he's given to Food Safety Magazine and BNP Media over the years on our webinars, podcast episodes, Food Safety Summit speaking engagements, articles, and other projects. We truly appreciate his collaboration and enthusiasm. You also haven't heard the last of Frank in Food Safety Magazine. Uh, stay tuned for Frank's participation in our New Era webinar series and in an upcoming podcast interview. 
Yeah, I was really happy to hear that because we've worked out this four-part series uh, with FDA. It, uh, uh, Frank was a driver on that uh, with us, so we're very pleased that he's going to continue to uh, finish out uh, that series with us. So that'll happen even after he's uh, left FDA. So thank you. Um, and then we we are going to have him back. Um, he's anxious to come back and, and uh, talk to you all about you know, after he's uh, left the agency, and we'll find, hopefully find out a little bit more about his experiences and, uh, and maybe what's next. Um, but I think that, you know, he's certainly, he's certainly done a lot <laughs> in a short period of time. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's been great. And we certainly uh, wish Frank uh, all the best. Yeah, there are a few people in this industry with Frank's resume. One of the things, I mean, he's a giant in the, in the industry. It's pretty easy to, uh, compliment Frank simply on his his, uh, his accomplishments. I was really impressed, though, when uh, we did the webinar uh, in, 2000, in 2021, mm-hmm. the supply chain re- webinar, yeah. and I was asking him questions on his perspective as a regulator. And one of the things he said during one of the questions was, keep in mind, I've got 30 years of experience in industry as well. Now, the number of people who can say that they've been at a senior position in the FDA with 30 years of, of experience in industry you, know, you have to be able to count on one hand, even if you need all your fingers. So, I mean, he's he's got a remarkable background, and he he's he's a really remarkable individual. Uh, and so, his 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 future is bright, whatever he decides to do. But it'll be really interesting to hear from him on our podcast when he joins us. That, that's going to be really interesting. Yeah, definitely. So, in other regulatory news. The Department of Justice has opened a criminal investigation against Abbott Nutrition in light of the 2022 Cronobacter Sakazaki outbreak linked to powdered infant formula produced at the company's Sturgis, Michigan plant. The outbreak included several infant hospitalizations and at least two deaths that may have been caused by Cronobacter infection. An FDA inspection revealed five different Cronobacter strains in the Sturgis facility, as well as inadequate food safety practices. However, whole genome sequencing analysis did not find a genetic match between the Cronobacter strains found in the plant and the strains isolated from the patients. Now, as we've previously reported on the podcast, the outbreak and subsequent recall resulted in a shortage of infant formula in the U.S. as well as an FDA prevention strategy for preventing Cronobacter contamination of powdered infant formula that supports elevating the pathogen to a nationally notifiable disease. FDA's handling of the outbreak, recall, and related issues also brought the agency under scrutiny and prompted Commissioner Califf to order the Reagan-Udall review, which has now led to a proposal for a significant reorganization of the human foods program. So we're clearly seeing a big domino effect stemming yeah. from this incident. <laughs> it's really interesting that this is our news lineup. Now, we know a lot of this news has already been out there. This is part of the, the challenge of doing these every, well, twice a month. And this was actually one of our cycles where we had an extra week, so we all kind of caught our breath a little bit there. But um, so this isn't breaking news at this point, but it all kind of stacks up in this episode. It's really wild to see it all stack up like this. It is dominoes, right? It's just wild. Mm -hmm. So in the category of finding out what's really going on, I think this uh, investigation may add some more details to what happened at Sturgis and what's really happening there as well, depending upon you know, how the investigation goes and how much of it's public. But I, I'm really curious to hear more about what happened because there are still some pieces that don't seem to match. And mm-hmm. uh, But I'm going to go back to saying something about Frank Yanis. Frank even said, 
um, a couple of times, don't put all your faith in the whole genome sequencing. It do, it's not that conclusive. So I'll take his lead on that, but I still want to find out more about you know exactly what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agreed. Because we've talked about this many times amongst ourselves and about um, you know what are the different possibilities for why you know the yeah. the strains didn't match between the patients and and what was found in the plant. And um, you know there is no conclusive. Uh, answer to that question yet. Um, but I mean, this investigation, we'll see if it turns up anything more that would lead to an answer, but it will be interesting to follow, um, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. And it certainly seems to me, I mean, uh, it always catches my eye whenever I see DOJ, you know, getting mm-hmm. involved in these things. Um, I think I also saw something the other day about that it's been 10 years since uh, since PCA, you mm-hmm. know, uh, which was... Uh, the first time I recall seeing anybody uh, really face implications um, uh, of, of this type of, event, of an event. So, but now we're hearing that more and more. So, I mean, mm-hmm. clearly times have changed, and this is still an investigation. Um, and aren't they building a new plant? They they announced that they're building a brand new plant to replace mm-hmm. that. I don't know when it's when groundbreaking is or when it's done, but they did say. I remember five hundred million being what they've allocated to build an all new plant. Yeah. Well, and there's just no question, too, that the infrastructure, particularly, you know, in this country is old, and that is really evident in a lot of our food manufacturing plants. Um, so, you know, hopefully this will be more of a, a, well, I don't know. We'll see where it all goes, but um, sometimes it's a good idea to just, you know, start over because <laughs> it is too expensive to update really, really aging uh, buildings mm-hmm. that just aren't, you know, fit for modern, uh, you know, uh, manufacturing and, and modern food safety practices as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if, and if anybody, anyone ever need to remind you about how important the jobs of our audience are, how important the job of a food safety person is, you now have a tremendous impact from Sturgis um, and then you were talking about building a new plant. We're talking about the Department of Justice, aside from all of the, uh, you know, the, the, the personal things that happened as far as illnesses and death and all the things that happened here. But uh, everyone listening has a very important job. Very. Mm-hmm. Crucial. Yeah, absolutely. So before we go, we'd like to share one last bit of regulatory news with you. So FDA recently set new recommended action levels for lead in processed baby foods. Now, these new action levels support the Closer to Zero initiative to reduce babies' and young children's exposure to toxic metals in foods. Now, the draft guidance from FDA notes that lead may be present in these baby foods because the agricultural commodities they're made from take up lead from the environment, particularly the soil, along with nutrients that are crucial for child development. Now, the draft guidance sets the action levels at 10 parts per billion for fruits, vegetables, mixtures, yogurts, custards, and puddings, and single-ingredient meats, and then at 20 parts per billion for single-ingredient root vegetables and dry cereals. FDA estimates that the new action levels could reduce exposure to lead from the covered foods for infants and and young children by 24 to 27%. Low levels of lead in baby food. That, that sounds like a good idea. Yeah, that sounds, we can go with that. Sounds, we can go with that. <laughs> okay, so as always, there are links to all the stories that we've covered in your show notes. And, you know, I like to remind you that you can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Just search for Food Safety Magazine. 
And if you want to take a deeper dive into all the great content that we offer, visit our website, food-safety.com. Remember the dash. Bob's all about the dash. We're going to get him a t-shirt that says, remember the dash. Absolutely. (laughs) Okay, so uh, now we're going to listen to Adrian's discussion with Zach uh, Ducheneau, Administrator for USDA's Farm Service Agency. In this role, Ducheneau provides leadership and direction on agricultural policy, administering loan programs, and managing conservation, commodity, disaster, and farm marketing programs through a national network of offices. Well, I'm here with Zach Ducheneau, the administrator for the Farm Services Agency at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And we're going to talk a little bit today about the Food Safety Certification for Specialty Crops Program. So, Zach, thanks so much for your time and welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us. So the Farm Services Agency announced assistance for producers under the Food Safety Certification for Specialty Crops program on January 20th. So give us a little background on this program, uh, who's eligible to participate, and what this assistance will mean for specialty growers who incur on-farm food safety expenses. The Farm Service Agency has, in recent history, had programs recognizing the fact that specialty crop growers have unique circumstances and needs that can't be met with our regular slate of programming that's really targeted at the Midwestern row crop farmers. This program is part of the effort undertaken by this administration to ensure that we are filling the gaps on the heels of the pandemic, hopefully on the heels of the pandemic. And cognizant of the fact that food safety certification has a cost to it. We created this program to to ensure that we're reaching out to our specialty crop growers in a way that helps them manage some of those extra expenses. What we announced in January was the second year of this program. We had an authorization to fund this for two years. So this is the second year of this program, and it'll help pick up a lot of the expenses that eligible specialty crop growers have, including first-time certification, updating food safety plan, upload fees, any number of things that can be found on the the website or in the fact sheets that we have to offer. I think it's more important to talk about the gaps that remain and how many of our tools still don't quite get there for our specialty crop growers. And this should be seen as a signal that we're willing to engage with that group of stakeholders to try to craft these tools better. We have some authorities that are given to us with by Congress in the Farm Bill that we work within. And our job here under Secretary Vilsack's leadership and guidance is to push the boundaries, find the barriers of our authorities so that we're doing our best job to meet all of our stakeholders' interests, including our specialty crop growers. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. And you mentioned a, a few things, uh, the types of expenses that are covered under these reimbursements. Um, what other expenses are covered? And then also, are there any types of expenses that are specifically excluded? And where can growers find more information on these specifics? I'm sure we've got a website somewhere on these sheets of paper, but farmers.gov is our landing page 
producers can go there and typically within a couple of clicks get to the relevant information. I'm a big uh, Google searcher. So if I see a USDA program, I Google the name of the program and then the fact sheet because that's where we put the readily deliverable information there. Also included in the list of eligible expenses, microbiological testing, soil amendments, uh, testing of the water, training, all of these things are included and they'll be more fully elaborated on in them in the fact sheets. And you can also reach out to your local offices or producers are always encouraged to call their administrator and share their stories. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Thank you. And another question for you is what types of food safety certifications does the Farm Services Agency encourage specialty crop producers to invest in and obtain if they haven't already? I don't know if we're proscriptive on that or not, Adrian, but mm -hmm. what makes sense to me is to ensure that you've got a access to a marketplace. We're doing a lot of work across the department to develop more and better markets for all producers, especially crop growers included, and come to an understanding either through your trade associations or cooperators out there that, that we have agreements with, what you need to meaningfully participate in those more and better markets and in existing markets. And that's the type of certification that you're gonna wanna be trying to secure, hopefully with some of the assistance here. I also like to, share with our producers that we've got the best loan programs in the in existence that I know of, favorable rates, favorable terms. We understand that there is room for us to grow with regard to specialty crops. And without having some efforts that don't come to fruition, we won't know where the definitive boundary is. So producers are encouraged to come in, talk to our team about the farm loan tools that we have, submit an application. Let's see if we can get producers finance to do this on their own terms so that they don't have to wait for a grant application process. It can be built into their business plan that's funded through thoughtful and proper financing. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. And now aside from the food safety certification reimbursements and then also uh, things such as the loan program you just mentioned, does the Farm Service Agency provide any other food safety assistance or guidance for growers? We align closely with our friends in the department that do that and can give referrals. But apart from ensuring that the producer has a viable chance to engage in production that will help them get a food product to a market, we're really the production side of that more so than the, the regulatory or the technical assistance on certifications and other items that will get you there. Our sister agency, the Rural Development Administration, has a lot of value-added tools that producers can use. And we have a growing list of private sector, nonprofit, NGO cooperators that we work directly with to help ensure that all of our producers have access to technical assistance that can help them get to these more and better markets we're working to create. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Zach, for uh, your time today and for filling us in on the food safety certification for specialty crops program and telling us more about how the Farm Services Agency helps uh, specialty crops growers. So thank you for your time. 
Thanks, Adrian. It's good to be here. Thanks for your time and interest in it and helping us spread the word. Thanks again to USDA for reaching out to us to make sure that our audience is well-informed on new programs like this that advocate for food safety from farm to fork. And now it's time for Adrian's interview with Lone Jesperson and Carol Wallace. Lone Jesperson is a principal at Cultivate, an organization dedicated to helping food manufacturers globally make safe, great-tasting food through cultural effectiveness. Lone has significant experience with food manufacturing, having previously spent 11 years with Maple Leaf Foods. Following the tragic event in 2008 when Maple Leaf Food products claimed 23 Canadian lives, Lone led the execution of the Maple Leaf Food Safety Strategy and its Operation Learning Strategy. Lone holds a master's degree in mechanical engineering from Siddansk University in Denmark, a master's and PhD in food science from the University of Guelph in Canada. And most importantly, <laughs> I couldn't resist, Lone's a member of the editorial advisory board for Food Safety Magazine. Then we have Dr. Carol Wallace, Professor of Food Safety Management Systems and Co-Director of the Nutritional Sciences and Applied Food Safety Studies Group and the Research Lead for the School of Sport and Health Sciences at the University of Central Lancashire in the UK. Dr. Wallace holds a PhD from UCLan and a Bachelor's of Science degree in Microbiology from the University of Glasgow. Her research interests include food safety performance from farm to fork, in particular HACCP system effectiveness in food safety culture, causal factors in food outbreaks and incidents, and controlling food safety risk in business and at home. Dr. Wallace was instrumental in setting up an academic network to explore and share knowledge about the emergent food safety culture field in 2015, the Salus Food Safety Cultural Science Group, and is its current chair. She regularly presents at and organizes conference symposia in the areas of food safety management and culture. Dr. Wallace is also widely published in the field of food safety and is author and co-author of several best-selling textbooks, which have been instrumental in guiding HACCP and food safety management practice in the international food industry. And after a quick break, you'll hear that interview. Steramist is the premier EPA-registered disinfection system for the entire food production process. From farm to table, Steramist disinfects all food contact surfaces and everything in between. Whether it's an animal farm, packaging, or production facility, Steramist kills bacteria and viruses like avian flu, listeria, and salmonella without having to wipe or leave residue. Find out more about Steramist at tomimist.com. That's T-O-M-I-M-I-S-T dot com, tomimist.com. So today I am here with Dr. Lone Jesperson, the founder and principal of Cultivate, and Dr. Carol Wallace, professor of food safety management systems at the University of Central Lancashire in the UK. So we've got a lot to talk about today on the subjects of food safety culture and how to affect positive behavior change in frontline employees. But first, I'd like to thank Lone and Carol for taking the time to join us on the podcast today. So welcome. Thank you, Adrian. Thank you. So first, I want to talk about we held a webinar on this topic on January 19th with Lone doing a wonderful job moderating 
And we had some surprising data from existing research that was revealed during that webinar. So the data that was revealed was that 37% of frontline employees don't properly follow food safety protocols. Now we know we need to address this. My first question for you is, why do you think that this percentage is so high? And also, do you see this as being related at all to ineffective adaptation to internal and external changes, which your research shows that 76% of companies don't do well? Yeah. First and foremost, thank you so much to to Food Safety Magazine for, for this great opportunity. Um, around the, the 37%, I would say that it's a highly connected to adaptation how organizations manage change around food safety, which is at the core of, of adaptability. And one of the reasons why we're seeing these relatively high numbers at the front line is that we're still in those maturity stages in many companies where food safety is driven from the top down. Um, many companies also drive food safety and food safety culture from the food safety and quality department out. So it's not integrated into the company's culture overall, it being food safety. So I think as long as we're still uh, trying to come to terms with how do we set food safety off as part of our organizational culture of what makes our organizations successful and make the investments in engaging our frontline team members, be that both in how they're learning about their unique roles in food safety or how we use tools like we'll talk much more about nudging to engage them in the conversation about changing food safety, then I think we are not necessarily going to be making a dent in this uh, lack of engagement, I would call it at the front line. So um, long-winded answer, but I would definitely say that uh, the overall way that a company decides to manage change around food safety influences the level to which the frontline teams are both engaged and know uh, what's expected of them as well. And, and I know that, Carol, you were obviously, um, I'm going to say the founding mother, if that's the term, <laughs> of, of much of the, the practical HACCP, um, both research and, and implementation that we see out there. And I know you have seen some similar trends when it comes to the HACCP teams. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Thanks for making me feel so old, Loon. <laughs> starting point. <laughs> um, but, but yes, we have seen um, in, in HACCP, research some of the issues around this adaptation piece um, and, and I think probably one of the best examples um, of this is when we look at um, what companies are doing around HACCP review. Um, of course we know that the HACCP system has been around for a very long time, everyone's been uh, working on the systems, all food companies generally have their HACCP systems and there's this kind of assumption that um, they're, they've been doing it for a long time, everything's okay. Um, but when it comes to the need to review the HACCP system, which of course is a requirement of, of HACCP, um, what we're seeing in some of the research is that companies are just not doing that very well. And uh, from an interview study that, that we've done here in the, the UK, um, what we found was that there was a, within the HACCP teams, there's a, um, Sort of a lack of confidence on what what to do here, how to carry out that the HACCP review, and really people are feeling that you know this HACCP system was set up by people a few years ago. 
They were very highly trained. They knew what they were doing. So who are we to actually challenge this? We don't feel we've got the competence or, or, or the ability to be challenging what's here in the system. So it becomes very much a, a checkbox activity, if you like, rather than a thorough um, review and challenge, which then lets you update the, the HACCP plan. So, yeah, I think very much similar. And and I think if I can build one point on, on what you just said, Carol, I think that checkbox mentality is an important statement there because I think that's exactly why we're seeing some of these 37% of, of frontline employees not uh, taking action as they're supposed to because if we're told that it's just about just do this, then the likelihood of us repeating that behavior is far lower than if we're saying do this because this is how it influences whether our consumers are are safe. And so, so I think it's connecting it again back to change management in the organization where explaining why something is really important and how to personalize it for the individual um, is, is so important. Absolutely. And I think giving them the confidence and the ability, the skills they need to be able to do that. Agree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that kind of leads into my next question for the two of you. Now, what is nudging? Loan, you mentioned this uh, before. And how does nudging influence change in food safety culture? Yeah, let's go back to the just very basic definition because we use the term or or gradually using the term much more. And it is a a derivative of um, behavioral economics and and really the founding fathers, um, Thaler and Sunstein, um, are the ones that put behavioral economics um, on the map for us when it comes to making change in behaviors. And what's so interesting for us in food safety uh, when it comes to applying nudging is that you um, nudging is any kind of choice architecture that changes people's behaviors without saying that you can't do so, we're not forbidding any options, and we're also not attaching it to any financial incentives. So nudges are those behavior-changing activities that causes us to do something in a different way without sometimes even being um, aware of that we were nudged into doing something different. So maybe a couple of examples just to hammer at home. The, the most important, or not important, but the, to some extent the funniest one is, and they describe this in their book, uh, Nudge, um, is where they, in Schreibold Airport in, in Holland, they embossed a little fly into the urinals in the washrooms. And um, they managed to reduce spillage with uh, 85% because of that. apparently men likes to have something to aim at. Um, but it's, it, in this case, it's a choice architecture design, meaning that it's about influencing behaviors without forbidding behaviors. They could, anybody using that urinal could have continued doing exactly what they wanted but they were, in, they were sort of lured into changing behavior because of this fly. If we look at that from a food safety perspective, I think we have lots of, and we've learned this throughout the global pandemic as well, um, signage on floors, uh, stand here, don't pass that before you have the distance between people, and incentives for hand washing as well when we walk into an area. Um, so there's lots of sort of signage and post-its that can be, be nudges as well. And then we have this, this way of nudging through um, social, changing social norms as well. And where we use uh, normative 
messaging. So what that means is that uh, messages that come out where, where nine out of 10 of your colleagues believe that they would like to know more about um, how uh, to properly wash their hands and why it's important. Um, are you one of the ones that can help us explain it to them? So it's a, again, it's a nudge because you might actually feel that you're doing this really well. And therefore, you might change your, your behaviors by next time that Carol and I are standing next to each other at the sink. And Carol is one of the super users for hand washing. I might actually be looking to Carol and making sure I wash my hands more properly because I know that there's this social norm out there that we all adhere to. So the, the project that Carol and I have, uh, have partnered on is one of taking those principles of nudging into the food safety space specifically by using some of those also habit-forming cues, reward-type cycles where we're asking people to tell us how they see food safety in their organization. And then we're asking those middle managers to then subsequently act on that, give some actions back by saying, hey, 9 out of 10 of you said, or 50% of your colleagues believe, and, and then they have a subsequent action on that. So we have that very tight weekly cycle that uh, where we're applying nudging, and and we we see it in the result that there's a greater engagement and also there's a higher level of performance. And uh, we see that both in their external audits but also their internal findings. So there's, there's a direct correlation between uh, food safety performance to how well we've engaged the front line through that sort of asking action type cycle. And um, Kill. <clears throat> You've seen a lot throughout our project as well around change and this incremental nature that I just described there in that Q, Q reward cycle. What are your thoughts yeah. on this? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, that's actually one of the points that I wanted to, to bring out here because I, th I think this is an important um, point about the, the, the capability of nudging to help improve culture is that it, it is this incremental process so you're doing lots of little things and through that you're adding up and and improving and strengthening culture over time and and for me I was really interested in in this idea when it first came out um because of that incremental nature because if we think about how we've done things in food safety over the years we tend to um, have our systems but um in terms of continuous improvement, we might have an annual audit um, and then we take actions based on what the findings are. And it was very much the same in the food safety culture space where we're measuring culture. A lot of the systems um, to do that and then to help you improve are about doing a large um, survey or a large intervention that looks at what the culture is like. And then the companies um, given uh, a report with uh, lots of things that they can work on. And it's it's the, the sheer size that that can be for a company that's perhaps their culture is not where they want it to be and they need to improve. And then they're hit with this great big long list of, of things they need to do. Um, so, so I think from a practical nature um, to be doing this incremental, a, a bit at a time, moving the culture forward rather than trying to develop a huge plan of lots of actions that have to be done throughout the business. Um, that's really what attracted me to looking at how this would work when, within businesses. Um, and, I, and I think it's, it's got a lot to offer because of that. 
adding adding to your point, Carol, maybe just say an example of what what does that look like, or what can it look like? So you ask a number of questions, get some feedback on what your team feels is going on this particular week around food safety, and then supervisors might hear that. We just don't think that we have the necessary resources to act on food safety in our area. Then the action, the very simple action can be go have a conversation with your team. And as, for example, Adrian, we had a, a participant in the project who went and asked that question of their frontline team. And it came down to that they had to use two different scoops, one for allergen uh, allergens and one for non-allergen containing material and they could never find the second allergen scoop so that's i think it's such a great example of how small actions and a nudge can be right and it, it's not about as carol said that we have these 12 months action plans you probably still need that from a strategic perspective but to create those incremental changes because you hear back from your team you go purchase a scoop and you've improved food safety significantly because they now have the tools necessary. And that's really, I think, the power in that very tight, short yeah. cycle. Yeah, I agree. Mm -hmm. Fascinating insights. And, you know, it's, I'm listening to you talk about nudging and, and how you motivate people. And it's interesting because some of these, some of these things are based on, you know, actually rewarding people you know, very positive reinforcement. And then some of them are, like you talked about, are more, um, you know, normative messaging or, you know, you, you you should be doing things the right way because, you know, other people will benefit from it. But when you think about it, you know, I mean, doing things to fit in with the group or doing things to help other people stay healthy, you know, that's positive reinforcement as well. So, um, you know, all this, all of this goes into nudging and it's a very fascinating concept. So, um, that kind of leads into my next question as well for you. And, you know, we know there's a lot of ways to measure culture, but improving and maturing culture is more difficult, but it's what actually improves food safety. So now nudging, that's a new approach to improving food safety culture and can be impactful in nudging improvements to food safety efforts in food businesses. Now, why would you say that university industry collaboration is so important for projects like this? Okay, maybe I'll, I'll kick off with that one, Adrian. Um, I mean, I think university industry collaboration is important for lots of um, different types of applications. Um, and project, but particularly in in things like this, where it's it is a new new approach, um, and we're really trying to um, validate that, if you like. So we we know that by doing this in a, a scientific way, um, we're able to look at it, look at what it's doing, um, and see whether it is really effective or not. Um, and I think that's important for food businesses. Um, longer term because then they know that if they're purchasing services um to uh to help them improve their food safety culture they want to be purchasing the tools that are going to um that are going to work that have been shown to be valid um so i think this kind of collaboration really helps to give that scientific basis behind it um so that so that we know um we've got results that show whether um, a method is is working or it's not working. Um, and from a scientific point of view, um, we we report either way. 
Um, so uh, the, the publications that would come from a university um, will tell you the strengths, but equally, if there was a problem, that's what they'd be telling you. Um, it's not about hiding that under the carpet. And Lone, how would you, why would you say that university industry collaboration is so important for, for a project like this one? I think um, it, there's a number of reasons. The first one is that um, culture is in, in itself an old topic. I mean, anthropologists have been looking at culture for a long, long time. It's relatively new in the space of food safety. Um, and, and I think we, um, we have to look at it a little bit like picking a color. Um, Everybody has an opinion based on their reference points and what they like personally. Uh, and if we leave the topic of food safety culture in that space, sort of that pseudoscience space that I believe we're in right now, then we run the risk of it um, it being food safety culture sort of fizzling out at some point because we won't get the strong data-driven scientific connections between a company's performance and their efforts around food safety culture. It's not cheap to change your culture. Um, it takes effort. It takes resources. And we can't keep going to leadership teams to prioritize this if we can't show that there's a connection to improve performance. And the best way for us to move out of this pseudoscience where today we actually don't have any research in the space of food safety culture that is uh, showing predictive validity. So predicting food safety performance because we've changed food safety culture and uh, having the the statistical significant equations to show that connectivity. We have to get down that path because, again, otherwise we can't keep encouraging our leaders in food companies to come with us to keep investing in this topic. So, so I think uh, we can only do that by engaging researchers like Carol and her team and, and other universities where, as Carol said, by the sheer nature of being in a research position like, like Carol and her team, it's about objectivity. It's about this is what the data is telling us and, and we have to make sure that we, we keep going down that path. And there's lots of universities that are. I just hope that we can keep collaborating with industry because this is not an academic exercise, um, and it's also not a picking your favorite color exercise. It's it's that collaboration where those two meet that we can make a difference here. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, Lone, you talked about leadership buying into this concept. So that goes right into my next question. And, you know, we know that to encourage change at a company-wide level requires buy-in from leadership. Now, before we get into how to influence the front line a little more, um, can you talk a bit more about some strategies for achieving the very important goal of getting buy-in from leadership for food safety culture? Sure, Ken. Um, maybe I'll take a, a kick of at least at one of those that come up very often in our work. Um, very often, we saw this in this project that we've collaborated with, with UCLan on as well. Uh, Changes initiated from the FSQA department and then out. Uh, because we now know that food safety culture requirements are built into the EU regulation. We know that it's in all of the benchmark standards from GFSI. And therefore, it's often FSQA that brings this topic of food safety culture to the attention of leadership teams. That's okay, but it cannot stay there. And um, 
Most food safety and quality assurance departments and leaders, they don't stand a chance for changing their organizational culture on their own. Um, it's not realistic um, and it's in many cases it's a, it's a frustrating experience for them as individuals as well. So I would say it's one of the first things that, that we have to acknowledge is that and then help our FSQA leaders position changing culture with the leadership teams. Because many really, really good, strong food safety and quality leaders that I absolutely admire and feel inspired by don't necessarily speak, uh, not, don't necessarily speak business. And so don't talk in terms of returns on investment. That's the way if we do this and not necessarily always super strong at explaining risks from a business perspective as opposed to a food safety perspective. And I think that's where we can use uh, nudging as well um, to, to just help them. How can they improve how they engage their leadership team so that they feel comfortable and that they're winning on this topic of food safety culture? Because otherwise, I go back to Kill's point, we run the risk that this becomes a check-the-box exercise. Um, and that's ultimately not keeping any of the 420,000 individuals that pass away every year from foodborne illness any sector. So we don't want to stay there. What do you think, Kill? Yeah, I, I think building on that, I, I agree really uh, on particularly the the issue around understanding the risks. I think that's really important as a as a first step that the business leaders do understand the the risks both from a food safety perspective and from a business perspective, because um, obviously that's that's really helping them to to buy into it, to understand, OK, what's going to happen if we don't improve this, if we don't get this this right. Um, and so I, I think that's that's a really important place to start. And, and as you say, Lone, it's often the food safety quality team that might be coming in and, and understanding the risks and needing to get that message over to the senior leaders. But I think then in terms of um, influencing the, the workforce as a whole and the front line, um, it's then important that the messages that the senior leaders are giving out um, are are there, they're, they're consistent, that they're um, walking the talk, if you like, they're doing as they say <laughs> that someone else should be doing. Um, and uh, and that's something I think we, we've seen also in in the project where leaders were going in and, and visiting um with the staff in in the front line and if they weren't doing something people were getting comfortable to um tell them off that they should be doing something in a different way but but the 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 fact that they're actually going in there they're sharing the message and they're sharing it in a consistent way i think is really important um to, to help influence the front line. Right, really interesting. So actually in terms of influencing the front line, now you speak quite a bit about messaging and getting that right. Now some key themes arose during the webinar we held about reinforcing messaging for food safety, including enhancing visibility, creating accountability, and encouraging an atmosphere of teamwork, especially among diverse workforces. Now, can you talk a little bit about the role that each of these components play in nudging the front line and maybe share some examples of each of those things? Sure. Shall I, shall I kick that one off alone? Um, maybe just pick up on the, the visibility of um, food safety, first of all. Um, and 
you know, you can think about that as, well, what can you see? What can you see on the walls? Is there a poster there about food safety? But it it's really um, also about um, whether people are relating to food safety and relating to it in, in their everyday job. Um, do they see what's food safety in, in their job? Um, if there's if they're standing on a, a fish line and their their job is to um, gut and fillet fish, do they actually know what's food safety there and and what's the company doing about about food safety? And I, and I think that's been um, something that's come home to me from from the project that this disconnect between um, some of the workers and what's actually happening in from a food safety perspective and not knowing what the company's doing about food safety. So they're doing their job, but they're not seeing what's what the policy is, what's happening in practice. They're not joining the dots. Um, so I, I think that's part of the importance of making food safety more visible and by not just having the poster on the wall, but by engaging with people and by communicating um, a lot more about food safety and what's happening and what the, co the company does. And, and clearly also in answer to, um, you know, if, we, if you're running this kind of um, project with nudging and people are telling you that they think there's a problem via, via the, the answers to the questions, they need to know what's happening about that from a food safety perspective. So how, how are things being improved and the, the feedback around that as well. So I think all of those things go to making food safety much more visible, much more part of day-to-day -day com conversations, um, which is obviously, again, to the to the benefit of this gradual nudging and improvement. Yeah. I, I, I think I'd like to bring in, to, I mean, we talk a lot about accountability, not necessarily a word that I'm very fond of, but um, I think it, it, we need to talk about how do we enable different uh, people in a food company to take responsibility for food safety in their area. And and then if we just for a second go back to the senior leaders, many of the senior leadership teams that, that we get the pleasure of working with, and I would almost say all of them, I, I never find a leadership team that doesn't want to take accountability or take responsibility for food safety. They're ready to do that. But I think we have made assumptions as a profession of food safety that because you're a leader in a food company, then you know about food safety. And that is more often than not, not the case with the full leadership team. So procurement, uh, engineering and other functional areas. So, so I think when we talk about uh, taking account for food safety, it has to start with that leadership group, making sure that they're well educated, they have access to asking those questions in a safe environment where they don't feel vulnerable or where they feel they can be vulnerable and, and not feel that they have to have all of the answers but can actually have a candid upfront discussion. Because I think when they start to do that, then that'll trickle to their teams in their organization. So their middle managers, frontline supervisors will start to ask questions as well. And the nudging and this, again, I go back to that reward, cue reward cycle that, that we work with in the project. Nudging really requires that you have the courage to listen to what people are telling you and then have the courage to take action consistently. And, and again, 
when you have that, then I believe that you can take accountability for food safety. And so I guess what I'm trying to say, Adrian, is that unless we enable senior leaders, middle management and frontline to all take responsibility for food safety, then I don't actually think we can get to seeing our frontline team members acting proactively on food safety because they're not seeing it, as, as Carol said before, they're not seeing leaders walking the talk and they might not feel that the poster on the wall is actually what they're seeing in action. So there's a disconnect and then it's almost worse having a poster on the wall. Um, and unfortunately, we're seeing a lot of companies that are really getting this right and really getting, and we heard two cases uh, on the webinar where two companies that are really getting that connection between what leaders are taking accountability for, showing it to how their frontline team members are, are feeling that they can take responsibility for food safety as well. So I'm not sure if that was too model, but um, I think that's an important point to just bring in as well, that there's a sequence of events in that from senior leaders to frontline. Mm-hmm. And what about an, creating an atmosphere of teamwork among diverse workforces, you know, especially when you've got um, a lot of diversity in the frontline team, you know, different cultural backgrounds, different linguistic backgrounds, or when you've got that diversity among, um, you know, the operations leads and the frontline workers, how would how would you create an atmosphere of teamwork in that uh, environment? Yeah, I, I mean, I think we've seen some examples that worked really well from uh, from the project, and they I think they may have been met, some of it may have been mentioned on on the webinar as well. But um, I think getting this in, engagement going, um, and it can take can take a while for these things to bed in. So, um, so one of the companies we worked with started. Um, Doing breakfast clubs, inviting everyone to come along, and and gradually more and more people were, were coming along. Um, there's various fun initiatives where um, they, you know, they might be having quizzes and uh, competitions between teams and and so on. So that's, there's a range of of um, things that that can be done. But I, I think the important thing is, is really to make sure that. Um, everyone is welcome in in this space so um i know and where there are uh that there might be with uh multicultural workforces there might be language issues um uh, and and so on and and you need to find a way to overcome that you you need to um be able to give people information in a way that they can understand it so that they can engage with it um and 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 this really helps to to build the the teams um together so that people start to understand each other and they're all starting to understand what's going on around food safety um as part of it so i think that's what i i would say i don't know whether you want to add anything to that loon yeah i think nudging is actually uniquely um, positioned to help with that diversity because i go back to the embossed fly and the urinal doesn't matter what language you speak yeah. right um, and um, I think we also have to say that when it comes to um, create this atmosphere of teamwork, it's about acknowledging uh, what are the social norms you currently have in a team? What would you like those to be um, over time? And the platform that we used in the project to gather data reports back out the participation in, in, in a work area. So 
you might actually see that there's a little bit of friendly competition between work areas, especially at the supervisory level, to say which one of my my work areas are actually the highest performing. So I think that that drives some again back to that normative messaging, some some cohesion. And then I think it's it's also about um, that feedback loop because if if a team keeps feeding back, we'd like to see this changed or we don't think this works and nothing happens, and then they're not going to keep telling you. And we, we all know that, right? I mean, how many times have we answered a survey and never heard anything back on that? I don't know about you, but it's sort of 50-50 whether I bother to do anything. And now when I'm asked for feedback, because, hey, not sure I'm seeing any kind of uh, impact from it. So giving that immediate attention to you told us and we acted uh, and closing that loop I think that creates some teamwork as well, or team atmosphere of team as well, because it's a team piece of feedback. It's not an individual piece of feedback that we measure. And, and our participating companies were very creative in how they rewarded those teams as well. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Lon and Carol. So another point that you drive home in your work is that Frontline voices are the source of food safety decision-making in food manufacturing environments, and behavioral nudging is needed for sustainable organizational culture. Now, how can a company get started on influencing frontline employee behavior to improve food safety culture? And also, who in the organization should be responsible for tracking progress in this area? Adrian, I think we... um... And we cited this in the webinar as well. And there's a great HBR article from 2011 that looks at the frontline management and, and teams as for how they can, what's the composition. And in, in what they found was that about 60% of the workforce in a company is made up of frontline managers. And that 60% of the workforce in turn manages 80% of the workforce. So I think to me that it means that 80% of the workforce in a company is directly or indirectly managed by a frontline manager. That, to me, answers that question right there. And, it, and it's also why I firmly believe in this concept of nudging and how we collect the data around it, because the project that we, we, we had with Carol and her team was not around engaging senior leaders. It was exactly about mobilizing that middle management of frontline team members and to give feedback to their direct supervisors and managers and then for them to act on that. So it was in that cycle we were we were trying to create change. And with those astonishing numbers as for who actually manages the majority of the company, I think that um, is where we need to put our efforts. Um, and, and we've got some work to do there. We, um, we have some work to do as for how we educate and engage um, production supervisors, FSQA supervisors, maintenance uh, technicians and mechanics. Um, it's at that level where the translation of strategy happens into your frontline team members and where you have the opportunity to get feedback on your strategy execution up through that level uh, as well. So that to me is is where we're at today with creating change is really mobilizing the middle to make sure that they have what they need to create change. Yeah, I I agree. And I think there's been this tendency for people to be in their work silos. Um, So the engineers talk to the engineers and 
and and so on and and production are all together and i think that that's part of this um so these pe- these people might not traditionally have been um talking so much about food safety uh they've been relying on the fsq team to uh look after uh that but really getting that understanding that they are all part of this this and they need their teams um to be taking part in it as well i think has been been a big part of this um but i also want to just pick up on um something loan i think you said earlier and it relates to this as well about this um having accountability to report back up to supervisors and report back up eventually to the the senior managers and it and the and the expectation that that up in the management team um actions will be taken um based on on what the food safety findings are because um as as you said i think senior leaders typically may not have had the expertise in food safety um historically and that's something that they're needing to get to get hold of um but i think just relating to some of the research around foodborne disease outbreaks we've seen outbreaks happening where leaders have done things have taken decisions um and they might have been for very good reasons they believed they were doing the right thing but they've taken the wrong decisions because they don't have that knowledge and i think as part of this we're we're involving the the um the whole workforce is coming up from the messages are coming up from the front line and the supervisors are working with the front line and, and bringing those to the the forefront it's it's equally important that those at the top are understanding the implications of those messages and and are, and are able to take action um for the company based on those as well i think thank you so with regard to tracking the progress of frontline nudging initiatives you know, we also heard on the webinar about the importance of reward and recognition, um, also the continual refreshment of program roles and messaging, and also that food safety must encompass more than just the technical to be effective. So can you speak a bit about how companies can implement and emphasize these components within their food safety culture journeys? Um, Carol, maybe you can lead us off on that. Sure. Um well, maybe if I start with the the reward and, and recognition piece for first off, because um, I think there's um, sometimes a bit of misunderstanding about what does that mean, and people think, oh, we have to pay people um, money or they have to have something financial to feel that they're, they're part of it. Um, but often, it, you know, it's not not that that people are looking for. They need to. They perhaps want to know that they're doing a good job. Um, and I can remember speaking to um, some people within uh, one of the businesses who their their view was, well, this is our job. We're paid to do this job. Um, so we're not looking for an extra reward, um, but we, we we're happy to know that we're doing it, doing things right and, and that that's making an impact on, on food safety. Um, so, I you know, I think reward and recognition um, can be really helpful um, to to get teams engaged and and the competitive nature of that. But um, I think companies can be quite creative about what what that is. Um, so quite a few of our companies ended up giving um, 
chocolate and confectionery um, as as something that people uh, won if if they uh, if they did something within the within the teams. Um, so small things like that can make a, a big difference, and they they help with the um, the team building and and the competitive um, nature there. Um, always uh, works well as well. Mm-hmm. If I can just add a, a couple of thoughts on the road and recognition, because I agree with Carol, I think we talk a lot about it, and and there are some there are some myths that we we need to bust a little bit. And I think we also always have to connect that we don't reward just because it's it's a program that needs to be executed on. We reward because somebody or a team is behaving in a way that we'd like to see continuously. So it's a positive consequence of changing behavior. That's what rewards are, and and unless you take the time to define what are those behaviors you'd like to see consistently. And so, for example, answer your question once a day so that we can know what you'd like to see improved on food safety. Or if you're a frontline supervisor, make sure you have a robust action um, on once a week so that your teams can see that you're taking their feedback serious. Then I think it's it's a, a disconnected effort to reward in the first place. So it should also always be connected to behavior. And then I think we need to um, look at the uh, the pyramid of recognition as well, um, where at the top of the pyramid, you have that sort of annual frequency of reward, which lots of companies have. Um, there's nothing wrong with them. But if you're then going back to, again, what extent do those annual rewards drive behavior? Research would say that it's about 10% of the, the effectiveness of those annual rewards. If you then drive to the bottom of the pyramid, then you're on the everyday recognition. And that's where it's about 80 to 100% impact on behavior because the closer the loop is between I behave in a certain way to the recognition that I'm feeling as part of my behavior, the more impactful a recognition is on behavior change. So I think nudging in itself is by sheer definition a short loop recognition cycle because I told you this, I see this for change, and there's a maximum week, uh, at least the way that we, we've worked with it. So I think from a reward and recognition perspective, it, it's it's something we need to grow up with a little bit as well to take it down the pyramid, enabling, I go back to our middle managers, enabling our supervisors to really understand the connection between behavior and recognition so that they see the, the feedback on their own behaviors as quickly as possible as well. Um, and, and it ties directly into the, as you said, the continual refreshment of program roles um, that we heard about on the webinar. And it, and I think that's because you have to break down those silos that Carol was talking about before as well. So make sure you include and, and get your HR departments in and take responsibility for your notch programs for and give input into it. Make sure that other functional areas, different roles in the organizations are involved in that as well. Because um, with the with the evolution in food companies, uh, in most companies, it's very fast, um, both from a new products, new people type perspective. And the more you can get other people into these program roles and help them give their perspective, know that they're, they're listened to, again, that's a reward in itself. Um, the, the stronger your programs will be over time as well. Um, don't let this become a an SOP in a food safety management system uh, because you won't see the impact on your food safety performance if that's the route you're taking your food safety culture efforts. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So, I, I mean, that's exactly the, the phrase you used, Adrian, about food safety must encompass more than the technical to be effective. That's exactly what, what Lone's talking about. And, and, and we see that all, all the time working with businesses. Um, once upon a time, it was the FSQ person's role to, to go and oversee things, but that's just not, um, not the way things are done. Um, now it's and it's not effective um, to have someone coming in and looking over people's shoulders um, to 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 try and control food safety. It's very much down to everyone being involved and everyone playing their role. So um, all the different disciplines have to be involved. All the workforce have to be involved. As Lone said, the HR people, the procurement people. Um, what they're buying, they need to be looking at safety there so that they're not buying in a problem um, for the, the um, rest of the organisation to try and solve. So it, it's very much an everyone involved in, in food safety and in improving the culture. And I will say as well, building on that point, Carol, we're seeing some fantastic examples of that in the global food industry companies that are really stepping up and willing to have the mirror sort of be held up and look at themselves to learn where they can where they can do better, celebrating improvements and the companies we work with through the project with, with Carol and, and University of Central Lancashire, we saw the improvements in their food safety data as well. So there is a correlation there and they serve all of the praises that we can possibly give them because it doesn't come easy. It takes effort. To get that kind of result. So I, I'm personally incredibly excited. Uh, we've been working on, on the topic of food safety culture for a long, long time now, but I'm starting to see some of those success stories more often than not, uh, where companies are really making change. And when you feel that energy that that brings with it, and, and you're seeing those people that when you walk into one of their plants or one of their convenience stores, proudly coming up to you and saying, I want to show you this, and this is what it was, and this is what it is now. I mean, that's when, and that's when I, I really feel that, hey, you know what, we're making a difference here, and, and makes me incredibly proud for these companies. So we're seeing change. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Lone and Carol, for sharing all these important insights on frontline nudging and food safety culture today with us. And also to our podcast audience, make sure to keep your eyes open for an excellent article on topics we've discussed here today that'll be in the April-May issue of our e-magazine. So again, Lone, Carol, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast and thank you so much for your time and your insights. Thank you, Adrian. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Always a pleasure. Thanks again to Lone Jesperson, Carol Wallace, and Zach Ducheneau for joining us on the podcast today. And of course, and as always, thanks to all of you for listening. And of course, a very special thanks to our presenting sponsor, Tomi Steramist. To learn more about how the Steramist disinfection system can help solve your sanitation challenges, visit tomimist.com. That's T-O-M-I-M-I-S-T tomimist.com. And of course, never, ever hesitate. Send us your questions or suggestions to podcast at food-safety.com or post a note on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. We're always happy to get your feedback. 
And of course, you can make sure that new and bonus episodes magically appear in your podcast player by clicking that follow or subscribe button in the player of your choice. And presto, while you're there doing magic, please throw some stars our way by rating the podcast, especially if you enjoyed it. It only takes a moment and it's good for everyone. All right, that's it for us today. Our next regular episode will post on February 28th. In the meantime, take good care of yourselves and those around you. We'll talk to you then.